It is May 18th, 2013, and you are listening to the Bad Brain Curio Shop with Aaron M. Bond. This is my new podcast, and uh, I feel like as this is my first podcast, I should give you a few notes on the format, liner notes, if you will. Those of you in the younger crowd won't even know what the hell I'm talking about, because everything is on MP3 these days, you whippersnappers. But um, what essentially I'm doing with this format is getting used to hearing my own voice recorded, because as it turns out, I don't like it very much. So consider this like podcast training wheels. Um, The format's going to be pretty loose. It's kind of whatever I want to talk about. You know, I'll probably usually start out with some shout-outs. I'm going to move on to some stuff of the week. We'll figure that out when we get there. Uh, Any personal stories that might have happened to me, anything in the news I might be interested in, video games I'm playing, movies, TV, um, anything else I might be doing in my life and want to talk about or geek out about. I'll probably put it down here. So that's really all you really need to know. And I'm going to run in now straight into some shout-outs. I wanted to shout-out to two different podcasters. Uh, First, I wanted to give a shout-out to uh, Mad Chat with Matt and Chad. Uh, They are a really great couple of guys that like to geek out on any number of things. So if you're into... Whatever is the latest shows on television or, you know, a lot of the movies that are out in theaters, if you're big into the summer blockbusters, they're doing a ton of stuff about that. They're worth a listen, and they're also funny as shit. Um, And also, I want to give a shout-out to Chris and Chris Take Over the World with Crystal Wolf and Chris Canary. Um, Another two of my uh, oldest friends out there, and they also have a really interesting podcast where they talk about different geeky things, but they also throw in some social stuff. They do a lot of interesting analysis. They'll do road trip podcasts. Just just a great thing to listen to if you're ever on the road and need some audio company. And the reason I'm shouting out to these two is because um, six years ago, I moved to Minnesota. I'm originally from Indiana. Those were my stomping grounds. That's where I grew up. And these two podcasters were great friends of mine from way back. And We still hang out whenever I'm in town, which is just not nearly enough, or whenever they come here, which isn't nearly enough either. So hearing their podcast kind of makes me feel like I can hang out with the old group, and because of that I was inspired to sort of do my own, because this way I can join in in the conversation and not just be a passing listener who's chuckling at all the jokes that are being made. So I wanted to give a shout-out to those guys. I also want to give a shout out to my wonderful girlfriend. Uh, excuse me, wonderful girlfriend Adrian. Um, she makes me feel like I can do anything, and she's probably going to be pivotal in convincing me that my voice doesn't suck. So uh, thanks to her for making me feel like this is not a terrible idea, even though it may still be. Who knows? Um, so those are the shout outs. I'm going to move on to some stuff of the week. This is where I'm going to tell you some stuff, and I'm going to add of the week on the end of it. And you can do with it what you will. So the word of the week is avuncular, which means like an uncle, particularly in benevolence and tolerance and raising someone. So if you have a family friend who is always sort of helping you out as if he were related, that is an avuncular friend. Kind of a fun word. The beer of the week is Grain Belt Northeast. Probably only my folks from uh, Minnesota are going to know that one. You guys down in Indiana, if you haven't ever tried it, uh, buy Grain Belt Northeast. It's really, really great stuff. has a really rich taste without being too overpowering. Um, and the wood of the week, not word, wood, is mahogany. The reason? It's just really fun to say. I dare you. Particularly if you're wearing headphones right now and in a group full of people who can't hear me explain this, try it. Just say mahogany. I bet you feel really good after you say it. So that's the stuff of the week. Um, personal stories, uh, not a whole lot going on right now, you know, kind of working for a living. Um, the weather is getting a lot warmer here in Minnesota. We had a really, really late winter as in we had a snow in May. So 
I was getting kind of cabin fevery for a while, but now the grass is growing. We're having some storms that are making things turn green and lush, and pretty soon I'm going to be out in the yard and probably trying to clean some of that up. Uh, Adrian is going to help me with some of that too because she has some experience in this department, so she knows a little bit better what we can do with it than I do. Um, but I'm hoping that we can really change it into something pretty, and I can probably start going bike riding, and the weather's just really nice. So here in Minnesota, just so you guys know, it isn't always permafrost, but this year I was starting to be convinced that maybe it was nothing but an ice ball of a state all year. So it's good to know I was wrong on that. Um, Other personal story... This is my 41st day, that's 4-1, 41st day, without any Diet Coke. Uh, it was something of an experiment that I've been trying, because, um, of course, you read all of these kind of pseudoscience studies where they're like, yeah, Diet Coke and aspartame may cause things like methane buildup in your system. It may aggravate depressive symptoms. Um, to be completely honest, I haven't noticed a huge difference, so... The one thing that helps with is I no longer get caffeine withdrawal headaches as often, and I'm drinking a lot more water. So I'll probably continue to cut back on it and maybe substitute tea as often as possible instead of Diet Coke. But what I'm thinking I'm probably going to do fairly soon is maybe just limit it to like one or two a week, because I still do like the taste, and it's a lot more convenient if you're out, um, because there aren't a ton of different things that you can drink at restaurants these days. It's pretty much sodas or lemonades or teas if you don't want to go alcoholic. Um, So, and just so everyone knows, this isn't anything where I think everybody should quit Diet Coke or everybody should cut back. You know, it's kind of a personal choice for me. It was just sort of an experimentation to see how my body and my mind would respond to it. So if you love your Diet Coke, I ain't going to judge you. Just keep drinking what you drink. Um... You know, so keep hitting the sauce, man. But it's been interesting for me. Uh, I've also been working out a bit more. I've been trying to get to the gym um, at least three times a week, if not every weekday of the week. Every weekday of the week can be a bit tricky because I have things in the evenings, and if I have a busy work day, that pretty much soaks up all my day unless I want to stay out late. But um, feeling really good about that. I feel like I'm kind of getting back in the swing of being active and being more physical than I used to be. So that's, that's been making me feel a lot better too. Uh, and hopefully that'll, you know, help with any summer activities I might want to do if, uh, I know Adrian likes uh, tennis, so maybe we might play some tennis. She was trying to teach me and I was pretty inept. I think I'll still be pretty inept because it's not a matter of strength or stamina. It's a matter of just being a klutz, but I can learn that, I think. Um, like to get out on my bike again, too. So, you know, this, I think going to the gym is helping me keep everything in shape while I can. So, other than that, not a ton of personal stuff going on right now. Um, some interesting local news. Uh, for anybody who's not from Minnesota, they, this may not be as well known, but Minnesota just recently legalized gay marriage, which was really kind of shocking to me, really exciting, because originally the um, this last election, gay marriage was on the pallet as a constitutional amendment outlawing it, and the state became one of the first to, like, reject it outright, um, and I say one of the first because I think it was erroneously reported that no one else had ever rejected it, and I think some other states have, but... Um, we all and out completely rejected uh, the idea of limiting marriage to one man and one woman. And I thought that was a really cool step in the right direction. What I never expected was that we would go the full way shortly after that, that the momentum would carry the entire state's progressiveness forward to allow gay marriage entirely. Uh, this quickly. I mean, less than a year later, it is now law. So that's been really impressive, and I'm just really proud of where I live right now for taking a stand for rights and, you know, treating people equally. Uh, Other than that, I mean, there's lots of news going on now. There's the IRS thing, which I think is kind of crazy and kind of... I, I have my opinion on it, but I don't like to 
I don't like it because it's so incredibly partisan, and that's part of the reason that I don't have much for news right now, is it just seems like all of the rest of the news is extremely partisan and or depressing, and I'd rather just not tackle it, so moving on. A um, couple of video games that I've been playing. Um, Assassin's Creed 3 I'd like to start out with. I got into the Assassin's Creed series in a big way with Assassin's Creed 2, and if you guys haven't played the Assassin's Creed series, starting with 2, I'd really recommend it. Um, the nice thing is the beginning of the games give you a a recap of whatever happened in the previous, the most previous sequel. So if you start with Assassin's Creed 2, it's going to tell you what happened in Assassin's Creed 1 so that you sort of understand, but the premise is... You're a modern-day person who is a member of the Assassins, and they actually are referring to the historical Assassins. They gave references to the... I think they were actually called Hashashains in the Crusades times. And that kind of... That bloodline is in the main character Desmond's bloodline. And they have a machine that allows him to relive his ancestors' memories... And the first game, he's been captured and placed into this machine by the Templars, who are the enemies of the Assassins. And they are trying to find artifacts called Pieces of Eden. He doesn't know why, he doesn't know exactly what they do, um, but he knows that his ancestor is the key to finding these things. And it's a key to a great war between these two factions. So... He ends up, you know, being forced into helping them throughout the first game. And the only reason I don't recommend the first game is it gets a little bit repetitive in gameplay. It still has a lot of the cool factors that the Assassin's Creed series does, but the missions are in a very predictable fashion, and they kind of corrected that fatal flaw in 2, so that's why I recommend people start there. Uh, 2, he's going into an ancestor from the Renaissance period, um, right around the rise of Rodrigo Borgia, who eventually became the Pope. And what I love about these games is they strive so hard to be historically accurate. You actually do feel like you're running across Florence, Italy in the 1700s. And that's just a huge, exciting world to play around in. And they do so well masking the game. Like, there's... One part of one of the games, I'm not going to be very specific because I don't want to spoil it for anyone else, but the mission is to protect two people. And when I was playing through it, this big struggle breaks out, and one of them died. And it didn't cause a game over, it just sort of let me continue going. But I figured, oh, well, crap, now I'm not going to get the good ending or the good story because I let one of these people die. And as it turns out, after I played that game all the way through, I went back and read about the actual historical figures that they were talking about. And it happened exactly the way that it was described in history. Like, they actually did have one of the brothers mortally wounded in a battle against these particular um, people who were coming against them. Again, I'm being purposefully vague here. But what was interesting about that was the gameplay was so well stitched together and so absorbing that I felt like I was responsible for something that they put in there because history made it happen. I felt like I was actually living it. So that's kind of how good these games are at that aspect. That said, moving on to Assassin's Creed 3, he's um, looking at an ancestor who was a Native American during the American Revolution, and it just doesn't hold up to the rest of the series. It's actually... I feel a pretty boring game compared to the rest. And I'll defend that first by saying one of the fun physical gameplay elements is being able to jump from rooftop to rooftop in a activity they call free running. So if you've startled a guard and now they're chasing after you for some reason, you can climb up to the rooftops and just with very simple controls use these acrobatic abilities to run from building to building to building to building and run clear across the map to try and hide somewhere so that the guards can't catch you. Well, as you can imagine, if you're talking about revolutionary America, 
you know, you'll get on top of a building in Boston and you might be able to jump four or five buildings. Then you reach the edge of Boston and you've got an open field. So you're not going to lose that guard and you're going to have to do a lot more of, like, actual battles. And the battle system um, is buggy and frustrating. There's a whole lot of... They, they tweaked it from the original games. The original games, I felt, had a very smooth uh, battle system that they just built and built and built upon. Uh, and this game tries to emulate the smoothness of the Arkham City and Arkham Asylum series of Batman. So they change it from using a lot of the shoulder buttons for things like block and defend and high profile versus low profile. Uh, they instead make it all about the four face buttons of the controller. And I feel like it's just lost a lot of precision. I find myself pressing buttons, expecting something to happen, and very often being extremely disappointed at the fact that my character has not deflected or not done whatever it was that, according to the game controls, I should be doing. So I feel like they kind of nerfed the controls pretty bad, and they really picked a bad setting for this style of game. There are a few interesting aspects to this one that don't show up in other games. Because you're in Frontier America, you can actually go out to a wide open map called the Frontier, and you can hunt. So in the other games, you're trying to build up a manor, and in this game, you're trying to build up a manor as well, meaning a a homestead. And... In those, you do it by buying paintings, or maybe you're rebuilding parts of the town. In this one, it has a lot to do with buying and trading um, with open caravans on the road, kind of like Frontier America would do. So if I kill a bear, I might get some ingredients from that, like I have a bear pelt, or I have bear grease, or the claws, for things that I can sell to artisans, and they can either build something for me from that, or I could use that money to invest in other things. And while I don't think that that system is as good as it was in, say, Assassin's Creed 2, where you're rebuilding a manor in Italy, it's at least interesting enough that it's kept me going. I have continued to be interesting and interested in finding rare artifacts or finding rare animals so that I, you know, would be able to build certain things that I couldn't build before, tools or artistic pieces, different things like that. So that's kind of okay. Um, The other thing that really I think a lot of people would like about this game is there's a a naval aspect to it. You actually have a ship that you borrow, and you can fight against British warships. And the gameplay with that is actually a lot of fun, and I think that's part of their motivation for Assassin's Creed 4, I've heard, is going to be a pirate series. I think that's coming strictly from people's reaction to this aspect of the game. The gameplay is very reminiscent of Sid Meier's Pirates, but it's a lot more refined. Uh, You have a lot more control over what the ship can do, but it's still that kind of naval warfare where you have to get past the ship and turn broadside to them in order to fire, and it takes a lot of tactics and sort of understanding of what the other ship is capable of doing versus what you're capable of doing. So that's that's definitely a redeeming factor of this game. But the bugs and the setting and the complete lack of character development, that's the other piece that I just don't like much about this game. I felt like they really missed the boat with Connor, um, who was this... Um, Native American character, and I felt like they could have explained the rich heritage a lot more, they could have talked a little bit more about his culture, about, you know, how he views the world and how he thinks about things, and it just feels like everything they do with him is fairly anecdotal. You know, here's a quirk, they're going to quickly explain it because that's what the tribe does, and then he moves on, as opposed to really kind of getting down into... You know, what is it his people believe? What do they feel? Uh, They didn't do a lot of character development there. And it's a really frustrating lack with Connor. Um, I don't feel like we needed it as much with, say, uh, Ezio Auditore, who is the Florence, uh, Italy character, because he was slightly more relatable to us. Uh, Being a European, he was somebody who we could sort of understand the background. And they also go into a lot of 
understanding how Italy worked at that time and how his family reacted to other families. And I just feel like with Connor, we're not given much at all. So he just seems like an angry person as opposed to a fully fleshed out character. Um, the same could be said for Achilles, who is Connor's teacher. We know he's been thrown out of the Assassins, but we don't know, or not thrown out of the Assassins, that he's quit the Assassin Order, but we're never completely given an explanation why, at least not so far. I haven't beat it yet, but I'm a fair way in and still don't really know his motivations. Um, and he just seems angry for no reason, a lot like Connor. He's always challenging Connor. I think they're trying to do like a Mr. Miyagi-style thing where he feels Connor will build character from, you know, working for just the sake of working, but they didn't do as good a job pulling off the whys and wherefores of that. Uh, ironically, the most interesting character in the game so far has been Haytham Kenway, who you only get to play for a short period of the game, and I can't really say a whole lot more than that, because Haytham is actually a really deep part of the story, but you end up Basically, I'd say about a quarter of the way in the game, switching from Haytham to Connor. And it's it's a rough shift, because Haytham I was actually invested in, and Connor, I just don't feel like they gave me enough hooks to really care about the character as much as I'd like to. So, Assassin's Creed 3 is something that I will probably beat eventually, but it's one of those things where I'm doing it... I'm doing it begrudgingly. I, I just... I don't come home excited to play Assassin's Creed 3. I kind of want to play through it because I want to know what's going to happen in the main overarching storyline so that I can catch up in Assassin's Creed 4 if they fix the bugs and the control aspect and write the next game a little better. And that's that's kind of sad for me to see with a series that I think up through 1, 2, Brotherhood, and Revelations was... A really sublime experience. The other game that I've played uh, in recently, and I think that probably everybody who's played this game has something positive to say about it, is Bioshock Infinite. Uh, I should start off by saying I'm a huge Bioshock fan. For those of you who don't know the series, it was uh, the character, the um, producer of the game described it as what happens when somebody who has a programming background also has a useless liberal arts degree. So the first game is a complete send-up of Ayn Rand's objectivism. Um, right down to the Art Deco style is typically found on the covers of her books. And there's essentially this character named Ryan, uh, Andrew Ryan, who built a city on the bottom of the ocean. And he did so to escape the tyranny of, you know, what Americans call freedom. Because, you know, they take away all of your hard earnings from taxes. They t the church tries to take away your hard earnings by tithes. And, you know, he also has a great disdain for communism because it's like, no, that belongs to the government and everybody. And he doesn't believe that that's true. He believes that what you work for, you should own and... The whole game sort of sends up why that philosophy can be dangerous if it's taken to the nth degree, like any philosophy can. And naturally, since it's a video game, what happens is you come down to the ocean long after the society has fallen. And because he kind of let scientists do whatever they wanted without regulation, because why put regulations on somebody who's trying to advance society? Uh, the scientists had created what... Uh, really just boils down to monsters. They're, uh, they're called splicers. They're addicted to this gene-altering drug called Adam, and they've just run amok in the city, essentially in the way the zombies typically do. So that part of the game was pretty fun, uh, and it has a really interesting story and just a gorgeous set of graphics. The, the maps in that game are absolutely beautiful. So... I'm a big fan of the series. Bioshock Infinite has really kind of taken a 180 on some aspects of the series. Because the first two games both take place in this underwater city called Rapture. The second game actually tackles um, collectivism or socialism and why that too, if taken amok, becomes dangerous. Um, the third game takes place on a flying city in 1912, so a good 20 or 30 years 
before Bioshock 1 and 2. And the Flying City is called Columbia. And they're extremely racist and um, jingoistic. They're very highly xenophobic about anybody from the outside and very pro, you know, this this city is kind of a metaphor for our country kind of thing. Um, and just to talk a little bit about it mechanically, the graphics of the game are crisp and bright and beautiful, which is a stark contrast to Bioshock 1 and 2, which both take place, of course, under the ocean. You don't see the sun at all, and lighting is sparse, and that is really a key element of the game. And this one, I'd say the first quarter to third of the game, you're not out of the sun. You're running around in what feels like a 1912 World's Fair, um, except you're floating on a city, and there are things that can alter your capabilities, like you know, giving you the power of throwing fire, or things like that. Um, one of my beefs with the graphics of the game, though, is that this crisp and bright world was actually really interesting. I mean, I think that that contrasted with the horrors of what was happening on the island, and I can't, I can't speak largely to that other than the fact there are lots of gun battles, there are lots of people kind of brainwashed into attacking you, so you'll be having a firefight in the middle of the street, but it's a beautiful day. And I, I thought that that was a really interesting cognitive dissonance that they created there um and about a quarter to a third of the way in they changed all that and everything about the world kind of clouds up and turns dark to sort of match what's happening in the game and i felt like that was a bad choice i i felt like if they had left it to where there was sort of that discord with the way the world looks and the way the world works it would have been a more interesting experience. But that said, it is still a gorgeous game. Just absolutely beautiful to walk through. You want to peek around every corner because you never know what you're going to find. You never know how beautiful things are going to be. Um, This is one game where I have to talk about sound. This game has this amazing soundtrack that's built up uh, from anachronistic music that you'd recognize. So... You know, you might be walking past and there's a barbershop quartet singing a Beach Boys theme. And it's like, wait, that's that doesn't have that doesn't make sense in this context. That doesn't make sense in this time. Or you might hear girls just want to have fun on the Calliope, or um an amazing like a cappella gospel version of Fortunate Son. All of these different anachronistic tunes just make you feel like you're in this world that is subtly wrong. There, there's something underneath it that is out of place and out of style. There's even a ragtime version of uh, Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. And you'll just hear these things playing either on the calliope or on the radio or people are singing it as they're walking by. And it really leads to this disquietness that you feel as you're walking or disquiet I should say this disquiet that you feel as you're walking through this world wondering what's wrong what is really going on in this in this city and to play a little bit with the story the story does a wonderful job of wrapping up why the city is the way it is why there are anachronistic sounds and you know, even technology that doesn't really belong in this time, and why the city is sort of run amuck with the power that it's accidentally found. It does a really good job of explaining all of those things. Um, gameplay, I feel like, was a little bit of a step back. Bioshock was a fun game, but it sort of advertised itself as, you know, you it's kind of your world to mold. You can set up the trap or the fighting arena however you want to set it up and set off this trigger so that it attacks them in your way and your way alone each playthrough is going to be different because you're going to have different ideas about how to tackle different things and what it really ended up being most of the time was you're sort of funneled into clever ideas 
there was a lot of Bioshock 1 where, oh, you have the power to shoot electricity through your hand, and there's a bunch of people standing in the water. Sure, you can do whatever you want, but only one thing's really going to be effective, and that's shocking them. Um, in the second game, I felt like they really fixed that. Um, by adding a lot more what you'll call trap weapons and a lot more trap-style plasmids. Plasmids are sort of the magical abilities of this world. They they gave you a lot more options. I spent way more hours playing Bioshock 2 than Bioshock 1 because any time that I got into a room where I knew I was going to face a very large battle, either because there were going to be a lot of people or one really strong enemy, I would booby-trap the room, and I would spend a lot of time thinking about how one thing's going to affect another and what's going to be the most effective way to thin out these people as they're coming towards me. It, it, It was really a thinking man's game, and I think that they really perfected the fighting formula in the second game. In the third game, it feels like it's a bit of a step back. It's more of a... Sure, you have multiple plasmids. In this game, they're called uh, Vigors, but it's the same concept. They're basically magic abilities. But really, you only need one. Like, you could focus on exactly one Vigor the entire game, and you'd be perfectly fine, uh, as long as you learned how to use it really, really well. Um... The weapons seem to lack a lot of substance. For the most part, the weapons are nothing but guns of varying size um, or bombs of varying size. There, There's this thing called the volley gun, volley gun, which really just shoots a bomb. And it just felt a little bit more like there's going to be people all over this map, shoot them, as opposed to Bioshock 2 where it's like, here's an empty map. As soon as you trigger something, people are going to be streaming in here, but you have the chance to sort of make this map your own death trap. And if you do it well, then you won't have to do as much just mashing on the mouse trying to kill things. And I feel like Bioshock Infinite took an unfortunate step back from that. Um, Huge portions of the game just feel like a a fighting slog. Uh, There's only one portion of the game where you really are required, in fact, to use that kind of creative thinking and creative trapping, and it happens really, really late. Um, Lastly, the characters. Uh, The main character in Bioshock Infinite, unfortunately, wasn't terribly fleshed out. That kind of was sad, but he sort of was. I can't say a lot here, because it's spoilerish territory. He's he's an interesting character, but I feel like they could have done more with him in the game while you're playing him as opposed to just telling the backstory through either flashbacks or, you know, other people's accounts of him. Um, where this game really shines as being clever and more, you know, more of a unique piece than other games, I think, on the market right now, is Elizabeth. And the plot of the game is you are a member, a former member of the Pinkertons, which are the precursor to our FBI, and you have been tasked with bringing home this woman named Elizabeth from this crazy island. And when you were told that, you were told that they would wipe away your debt. Apparently you're a bit of a gambler. The game starts off and you see a lot of gambling tickets around the office of the main character. As long as they bring back, he brings back the girl, they're going to basically consider his debt paid and gone. So he's fighting you know, through this city to find her. And unlike what you would probably expect from most games, he finds her about 10 to 20% in. And then she becomes a member of your team, so to speak. She's with you fighting along your side the whole game. And this is where the game could have gone very poorly had they not done it as well as they did. And I, this is one of the more impressive feats I've seen in gaming design recently. Elizabeth is not an escort quest. That's the woman who you have to save. She never is in danger of dying. Your game is never going to be over because she's been hit by a stray bullet. Um, And you never have to position yourself between an enemy and her. She's good about just taking cover. And really what she does is provides a lot of intellectual foil during the non-combatant parts. Uh, She's there talking to you, trying to you know, figure out the city with you, occasionally fighting with you, but 
she plays that character very well. And then in combat, the algorithm seems to be you have like maybe a one and a quarter chance uh, if you're really low on ammo or really lim- low on salts, which are the mana of this world. She'll just randomly say, hey, Booker, look what I found, and toss you what you need. And there have been several battles where I wouldn't have made it through had Elizabeth not been there to throw something I needed at the last possible second and help me out. It's not so much, because that's dangerous too, it's not so much where I feel like I'm infallible. I have died multiple times in this game. Um, and Because she's not going to save you all of the time. But a lot of times the game is pretty good about predicting when you know, okay, we haven't given you enough ammo in this area, so Elizabeth is going to randomly find some, or she's going to randomly find some health to help you out. And it just was really impressive. I I felt almost like I was playing a two-player game, because the AI on Elizabeth was A, non-intrusive, and B, so well-matched for the task. Um, the other characters that I'd be remiss without mentioning are the Lutesses, which are these uniquely dressed, I shouldn't say uniquely, uh, identically dressed um, 1920s style characters who kind of feed you weird and obscure clues throughout the game. They just sort of show up on the screen and start talking to you and then you look away and you look back and they're gone. And They are fascinating characters and the game gives you a lot of opportunity to play through it and figure out what's really going on with them. And I really enjoyed learning what they are and what role they've played in this world. And that's another place where I felt like if they hadn't given me the information that they gave me, it could have gone very wrong. Um, Lastly, the one thing that I'll say about this game, if you do decide to play it, spread throughout the world are these little voice recorders that play you snippets of history about the world. It's really important that you find all of these. I didn't think about it because I'm kind of a completionist when it comes to Bioshock stories. I I go down every corridor, I look around every corner, mostly because I want to get all of the maximum stuff that I can. But because of that, I found all of the audio diaries and listened to all of them and sort of knew the history. If you get to the end without having listened to those, or if you just sort of fly through it and don't really pay attention, the ending is going to be extremely confusing. So the one word of caution I'll give you, it is a fantastic game to play. I would recommend it to anybody. But if you're going to play the game, make certain that you pay attention to the auxiliary material going on throughout the game, because otherwise the ending is not going to make any sense at all. So... Bioshock Infinite, I would say I'd give it about a B plus. Assassin's Creed 3, I'm going to give it a C minus. It passes, but it really does it by the skin of its teeth. It's not what I would call a fun game. It's keeping me interested because I want to know what the story is doing. Um, so those have been the video games that I've been playing recently. Uh, a couple of technology notes. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Nexus devices because... Right now, Google I.O. has been going on, and I'm currently a Verizon uh, subscriber, and I just wanted to take this time to gritch a little bit about something that I I don't like about Verizon and what might eventually lead me to leave uh, them as a customer. I currently have a Google Nexus phone, and for those of you who aren't into the Android ecosystem or don't know what Nexus is, Nexus phones are built by many different hardware manufacturers, but they have the agreement of Google that they're going to be the first with the newest versions of Android. So they get the newest toys. They're kind of blessed by Google as the gold standard of devices. Um, Because of that, they also tend to be... Well, don't tend to be. Google forces them to be stripped of any of the bullshit kind of character... carrier add-ons that you'll usually see. So if you pick up a phone, it's like a Motorola whatever from uh, Verizon, chances are it's going to have a ton of Verizon junk on it that you don't want but you can't remove. And rooting it is going to actually... Rooting means getting access to the deeper parts of the phone that aren't... that are kind of for developers and IT professionals only. 
rooting it is going to require literally hacking it. They've made it difficult to get at that stuff, and the only way you'll be able to do it is by hacking or tricking the system. Whereas with Nexus devices, you just you know send an unlock bit to it, and it unlocks. And then you can root it. Because they encourage that. They encourage developers to play around with them. Verizon has been horrible about their Nexus device. Um, the Galaxy Nexus on all other carriers has kept up extremely well. Um, unfortunately, on Verizon, they've been four revisions behind. And that's that's really hurt the experience. On top of that, it doesn't look like Verizon is going to get any other Nexus devices because Google's had such a big fight with them. And... That's kind of a big deal for me. Uh, I've had several Android devices, and they've all been okay. But this Nexus device is the only thing I can really say makes it feel like a complete ecosystem. It makes it feel like a phone that is completely integrated and I can rely on. Um, I was kind of depressed with Android before the Nexus devices because it felt like it was seeking to be like the iPhone, but not close enough. So... If Android doesn't kind of get their shit together and let go of this idea of having absolute control over all devices at all times, um, I'm probably going to have to go to a different carrier who will actually give me the device that I want without all the junk that I don't. Uh, let's see. What else has been notable? Uh, movies and TV. Uh, we recently, Adrian and I, have been watching some of the uh, movies that have won the Oscars or were noted in the Oscars. Uh, We saw Argo, and I have to say, that one just felt really, really flat. I I, I can't believe that one won an Oscar, because it had really bad pacing. It was boring through most of it. Um, And Affleck, uh, he just sleptwalked through the role. I've never seen an actor more wooden. So I, I don't really understand why this story won such accolades other than the fact that it's just an interesting story, but it's history. He didn't write it, so I don't understand what it deserves. Um, I wouldn't recommend Argo to anybody. Really, if you're going to see it and you're really interested in it, you know, rent it when it's on the cheap shelf. It's it's not worth going out of your way or renting, you know, at new release prices. Uh, on the other hand, we saw Zero Dark Thirty, and that was fascinating. They did a really good job keeping up the pace with the story. They did a really good job of sort of bringing you into the mental philosophy of the CIA at the time and why it was really hard to trust and believe the intelligence that they were being fed. Um, And they did a really good job showing you just the ops aspect of it. Like, you felt like you understood what was going on in Zero Dark Thirty as if you were a part of the mission. And I, I liked that about that movie. I thought it was really engaging that way. So um, I'm glad that it was in the running. I'm glad that it won some awards. But really, I think that it should have displaced Argo. It was far better a story. And in a similar aspect. I mean, it's about a, a CIA mission, just a more modern one. So I, I, I have to recommend that one. Um, one that I have seen very recently... Uh, which I had never seen before. Adrian found this to be a travesty, so she's the one that recommended we watch it. And I know that some of my friends are going to cringe when they hear that I haven't seen this before now, was Kill Bill. Um, And I'll be the first to admit, I'm not a huge Tarantino fan. I've liked some of his work, and I understand the artfulness with which he does some of his work. And I know that this is the most common complaint with Tarantino, but it seems like the violence in Tarantino films is so over the top. Uh, And, you know, I get that he's trying to make a statement with it, but it's so over the top that I feel like it distracts from either the message or the visual aspects of his films. And because of that, it's hard for me to get into a lot of them. That said, Kill Bill is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen visually. I think it was actually just stunning the way that it was shot, the colors that they used, the set designs, the way that people moved about on the set. I mean, it looked like a ballet, even with, you know, the violence. 
And it also had this incredibly intriguing story. He did a really good job of giving you just enough information throughout the film that you're going to wait at least one more minute because you have to know what that is all about. And then it just asks, you know, asks another question. And unlike Lost, yeah, I'm going to throw in a dig in about Lost, it actually does resolve at the end. You learn, you know, who Uma Thurman's character is. You learn who Bill is. You understand a little bit more about why she's in the position that she's in and who everyone is that's, you know, against her. And I just I just felt like it was a really, really great set of films that I wish I had given more credence to when they first came out. Um, just last night, unfortunately, because this is going to be really into spoiler territory since it came out, I think, this week, uh, I saw Star Trek Into Darkness. Whether you're a fan of the old series or not, go and see this film. It is fantastic. Um, much like the first one, it is visually stunning. They do a really good job with all of the uh, special effects, the fight scenes, the action scenes. Everything is really, really gorgeous and fun to watch without being so distracting that you don't know what's going on. Um, the story is fantastic. They really build the characters up a lot, and they actually tackle the characters in the context of the Star Trek universe, I think even a little better than the first movie did. They sort of take Roddenberry's seed of understanding of what this world is supposed to be and, you know, some of the characters and how they're supposed to play out. They play a lot more with those ideas. Um, so definitely, if you if you are a fan or aren't a fan but have an inclination to see a really good science fiction action film, go see Star Trek Into Darkness. I can't say any more because there's... I think if I described the first scene in the film, it'd be close to spoiler territory. But but go see it. It's it's really, really great. Um, last place I'm going to go, which is with media, movies, and TV, um, is another place where I have to be really careful about spoilers. In about 45, 46 minutes, uh, the new Doctor Who is going to come on. And it's going to be the last one of Series 7. And I'm really interested to see what Moffat does. Because he's walking on what I think is really dangerous ground. Um, he's playing a lot with the mythology, and he's threatening to reveal a lot of secrets that kind of make up what Doctor Who is. Even the name, originally Doctor Who, was supposed to be indicative of the mysteriousness of the man. And... Moffat is playing around with that. And while it makes me nervous, uh, I think if anybody can pull it off talking about that, I think it's probably uh, Moffat because he's so careful about his plots and so well thought through with his plots that I think it'd be, it'd be hard to see a position in which he would do anything damaging to the overarching story or character. But this season has been kind of interesting. They they have this new companion, Clara, and um, she's been a big part of sort of the overarching theme and the concept behind this series. And I like her a lot. I think she's a really interesting character, but in a few of the stories, I just feel like they try too hard to make me like her. I wish they'd just sort of let Jenna Louise Coleman do her thing and they'd be fine. Uh, but the show is kind of saying, love me, love me, love me all the time. And I'm like, you know, frankly, you're doing just fine. Just back off a bit and just be yourself. <laughs> so that that's made it a little bit hard, but, um, and it does feel like a few of the episodes have been nothing but filler, you know, just sort of driving home that we're building up to this grand finale, but I have to do an episode right now. So here's the monster of the week story. And it's going to be a little thinner than most of them have been. But that said, um, it's still been a really interesting ride, and I'm really, really both excited and nervous for whatever they're going to do next. Um, some other media, a couple of books I've been reading. I just recently got through Ready Player One, um, which if you're a geek, or love a geek, or know a geek, or have any geek tendencies, or like the 80s at all, this is a book that people need to read. Um... A friend of mine asked me, what's it about? And 
I summed it up as a near-future dystopian cyberpunk science fiction with an 80s fetish. It is possibly one of the best books I've read in a really, really long time. Adrian got it for me because a friend of hers recommended it for the nerd in her life, which I guess is me. Um, I couldn't put it down, and that's rare for me. I'm not usually somebody who... I'm very picky about my books, so usually when somebody hands me a book, I get nervous about the fact that I may not be able to get through it, because a lot of books don't grab me. They have to have exactly the right formula, and Ready Player One hit it on the nose. So I know a lot of people out there would really like this book, particularly people who are friends with me. And I'm going to say this knowing that it's going to get people excited, but I'm going to put out a warning. I'm currently reading The Gunslinger, Stephen King's The Gunslinger. I'm about two-thirds through. And while I like a lot of the themes, I like the coloring of the world that he's done, it's still Stephen King, so I am really slogging through this book. I have a real hard time reading Stephen King. There's something about his pacing that just makes me really lose interest easily. So I'm going to do my best to try and read the Dark Tower series. But it, it, so far it's been a struggle. Not because I don't think Stephen King is a good writer. He just doesn't write with a voice that attenuates well to my ear. So I'm going to throw that out there. I feel like it's a dangerous thing to do because I know several people who are absolutely in love with this series. And I can see why. It is Even just reading two-thirds of The Gunslinger has sort of made me appreciate the piece of art that it is and the artfulness of the story. Um, I'm just having a hard time because Stephen King's syntax is not compatible with my brain a lot of the time. So putting that in here, because I'm sure people would be interested, but also kind of potentially damning myself to being the point of other people's ire if I ever give up on the Dark Tower series. So I apologize ahead of time if that happens. Um, That's about all I had this week. So I'm going to leave you guys with a quote. I want to see how geeky my crew is, so I'll probably do this every podcast. Take a listen to this quote and see if you can tell me which movie it's from. The world isn't run by weapons anymore, or energy, or money. It's run by little ones and zeros, little bits of data. It's all just electrons. I don't care. All right, everybody. Have a good week. Stay safe. I'll see you later. Intro and outro music provided by Latchy Swing. Hear more of their music at freemusicarchive.org slash music slash L-A-T-C-H underscore swing. This podcast was recorded, produced, and distributed using open source technologies. The Bad Brain Curio Shop podcast is copyrighted 2013 and licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 3.0 unported license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. 